Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine, a podcast dedicated to creativity and the human spirit, which is produced and sponsored by the Portland Art Gallery in Portland, Maine. Today, my guest is the president of Swans Island, Bill Larita. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Lisa. And uh, if I may ask, what are you doctor of? I am a medical doctor, a medical actually. Doctor. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the sort of the random medical doctor who who does a podcast on creativity and the human uh, spirit, right? What's your specialty? I'm a family doctor. A family doctor. Okay. And practicing. Yes. Well, I work as a chief medical officer for a health system now. I see. Yeah. Okay. And see, you're, are you practicing for your own podcast here? Are you interviewing me? Well, I just like to get a sense for who's interviewing me and sure. have it be more of a dialogue instead of a monologue and just to understand where you're coming from. That's all. Well, I think that's a that's a fair question. And I think mm-hmm. as a family doctor, and I've been in practice for many years, mm-hmm. um, I like getting to know people and understanding where they're coming from, mm. because not only does it help if I'm working with somebody with their health, but also happiness, the happiness of being a human on the planet. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I do these conversations mm-hmm. is to find out more about what makes people yeah. tick and what keeps them happy and what they do in their daily lives. It's probably very different than the work I do in medicine. It's all about health, a holistic approach to health. I would say, yeah. yeah. Well, I can see that connection. Yeah. It makes so, a lot of sense. Yeah. So tell me about Swans Island. Well, let's see. So Swans Island Companies, its official name, um, it was founded in 1992 in Cambridge, Massachusetts, by two people who uh, became friends eventually. Uh, John and Carolyn Grace were attorneys um, and wanted to do something completely different with their lives, sort of a midlife, joint midlife crisis, perhaps. And so there were these old blankets in John's family. So John is a flinty old New Englander whose uh, mom, I think, passed away at 103 or so. And uh, John looks the exact same now as when I met him many years ago. Uh, great guy. And uh, so they said, I wonder if anyone's making these blankets. And these are really great blankets to sleep under. And they've held up well through generations of the Grace family. Uh, they looked into it. No one was making them. And they said, well, why don't we make them? Uh, and so they learned how to make blankets. I, I'm you know, editing a story here for you. And um, they had a place on Swans Island, and that was where they wanted to end up in their semi-retirement. And they didn't want to run a business per se. In fact, they scoffed and laughed at friends who told them, you need a business plan if you're going to make blankets and try to sell them. And they they thought that was hilarious. So they, uh, not a bad way to found a company, in my opinion, because all they cared about was making the best blanket possible. They didn't need to make a tremendous amount of money. They're pretty frugal people, I think that's safe to say. And so they just went about making the what they felt was the very best blanket they could. And that is a blanket made out of wool, with the wool yarn spun in a certain fashion, a woolen spun yarn, without getting too much into the weeds, and um, what's called an open weave. So if we think of an army blanket, maybe from our youth or camp or something, and how scratchy and stiff that was. Not a good way to make a blanket. But an open weave is one that leads to the best hand. So the hand is the way that, let's say, uh, you know, if you throw a a piece of fabric up in the air and it kind of floats, you know, and the way 
it feels in your hand, the drape of it. Uh, that's what makes the best blanket, one that breathes, one that you don't wake up feeling damp under. And so that's what, uh, what they did, irrespective of the finances of it and all of that. I mean, they relocated to Swan's Island, uh, which is a very romantic idea, making blankets on an island in the middle of uh, Penobscot Bay or uh, whatever that body of water is up there. And uh, so they would do things like, well, we'll be open from two to five, Monday through Friday. And even then, maybe we'll want to go for a walk and someone will come by and they would tell them, go and look at the blankets. If you like something, leave a check. We're going for a walk. So uh, then some health problems cropped up for them. They couldn't continue. They got in touch with us and uh, us being my wife and I and my brother and said, you guys should take this business over. Um, and we raised our children in Charlottesville, Virginia. And we were both Waldorf teachers, if you're familiar with that uh, form of education, which is also very sort of holistic and process oriented. And so again, without getting too much into the weeds, we said, yes, we, we will do this. So we went up on the island and apprenticed, learned how to make blankets, how to dye yarn, how to sell blankets. And um, in the meantime, we, were, we did not want to live on Swan's Island uh, because it's, uh, you know, it's pretty isolating. And uh, so, but we uh, had a lot of family on the coast of Maine and that made sense. So we bought a farmhouse on Route 1 in Northport uh, renovated it, added to it, and moved the company after our apprenticeship to Northport. Uh, and that was 2004. And now we're almost at 2024. So it's almost 20 years on the island and it's over 30 years as a company. So I'm not sure exactly what your original question was, but that was an answer to some question. Well, I think it provided good background on what the Swans Island Company is and sort of the origin story. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually interested, since you brought it up, in um, why somebody who used to be involved in Waldorf education, mm. why this would seem like a reasonable next step mm. for, for you and your wife. Right. Well, my wife never had the intention of staying with the company. So she there. one of the reasons we were interested in moving to the mid-coast because there was a Waldorf school there, the Ashwood Waldorf School. And she ended up becoming the director of that school for many, many years. Um, but for me, it was, well, I had always worked a lot with my hands. I was a blacksmith, a carpenter, built a lot of furniture. Um, and very interested in how, you know, how do you take a raw material, take it through a process and make something that's useful, functional, but also beautiful. Um, so that has always been, that's an ongoing, you know, interest of mine, let's call it. And then I also was fascinated by what, how does the economy really work? So I'm interested, you know, I was a history teacher as well. Prior to being a Waldorf teacher, I was, a, I taught history at the, high, at the high school level. So always interested in sort of how does this, how is this world put together? Let's, let's call it that. Um, and particularly like 
the economy. How how does that work? You know, how, how what what's supply? What's demand? What is a supply chain? How do you get involved in that? You know, in a small way. Of course, you know this isn't General Motors or or Apple Computer or something. Um, but how can that, what impact does it have in a local community? How do you work with employees? Cash flow. You know, all of those things uh, I found very broadly interesting, and so putting that interest, you know, combining that with my uh, sort of ongoing compelling interest in how you make things, um, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, so even though I had worked in different mediums, in wood and in metal, it was like, well, this is a, this is a different medium, but it's also a process. And it's so much about details. Uh, I remember very well the first time I was involved in warping a loom, which is, so the warp is the vertical threads, are the vertical threads, and the weft or woof, they call it, or fill yarn, those are the horizontal threads. So in order to set a loom up, it's called warping a loom. You gotta set your, your vertical up first. And when you do it the way that we do, you have to, uh, you have the old warp that's on there, and you have the new warp that you've wound onto a beam, and then you have to connect those two somehow. Well, the way you do that is you, you tie a knot. And in our case, on one particular set of blankets, you tie 3,456 knots. And I thought, that's crazy. You can't tie over 3,000 knots every time, you know, every time you make 20 blankets and you rewarp the loom. In fact, that's exactly what you do. Uh, another thing that we do, because we don't harshly treat are the fleece with, with harsh chemicals to burn out the chaff out of, from, you know, fleece, right, coming from sheep on a farm. They're animals, they get stuff, you know, vegetative matter in their fleece. And what we do is after it's spun, and then we weave it or dye it, and then we finish it into a finished product, there's little bits of chaff left in there because it's been organically processed. We take surgical tweezers and we pick that chaff out by hand. And that was another thing was like, we, that's crazy. You can't do that. You know, you imagine that. And sometimes it can take hours to do that if the fleece is dirty. So, in fact, you do do that. And that is the way that you maintain some of the landland. So if you don't treat that fleece harshly and burn out all that chaff, you also leave in some of the landland, which is that natural grease. And that leads to longevity in the finished product and also a nice suppleness to it. And, you know, our blankets, wool products that are made the right way, will last many, many generations, just like that first blanket that inspired the company. And so we sell the blankets in a canvas bag that we construct, a linen bag, excuse me, and it has aromatic cedar planks built right into it. And that is a natural moth repellent, of course. And it has a little card, and on that card it says who bought it, and then there's a space for multiple generations that are going to receive that blanket next. And we also have an organic cleaning service and a blanket hospital, should anything happen to your blanket. So we can depill it, should it pill up, should you have a moth hole, we can reweave that if the neighbor's dog gets to it and takes a big bite out of your blanket, we can re either patch it or reweave that back into existence. So the idea that we're standing behind our product, making something we really believe in, and in fact, want to keep that connection going, you know, we don't want to like just sell the thing and then 
thank God this thing's out the door and let's hope they never, we never see them again. In fact, we want to see you again. We want to hear about how your blanket's doing and want to help you care for that blanket and hopefully sell you more. So, yeah, again, I feel like I'm meandering a little bit, but um, there you have it. And, and what was your original, aside from the blanket piece, but do you have a longer standing connection to Maine? I do now. Uh, well, my connection, my mom grew up in New York City and as if you could afford it, and this is still, I think, the case, and you live in New York City and you have young children, you send them to camp. And so my mom and my aunt, uh, this was two sisters, uh, went to camp at the Pinecrest camp. Um, and so my mom always had a love of Maine and particularly the smell of pine. So I grew up with that sort of as an idealized place. And then... Um, we were, before the camera started rolling here, we were talking about my brother, Jim, he moved up here, uh, because he was a vet and he, uh, got on with, um, a guy named Vic in Camden and learned the trade after he'd had his, you know, his education. And then, um, because he had worked in the circus years earlier with my older brother, Tom, he had this connection with elephants from that circus. And as he was getting on in his vet practice and, you know, I think it's fair to say sort of what comes next after cats and dogs, uh, he remembered those elephants that he'd worked with and that they were getting old and they had some injuries and elephants are pack animals. When one of them is injured, the others shun them. Uh, and so he knew that uh, these Rosie and Opal with two elephants names needed care. So he decided to open up an elephant clinic in Maine. And again, long story short, he passed away doing that work that he loves. So I think when you have someone in your family who's, you know, gone through an experience like that and then passed away, in a way you do have a connection with that space that you don't have if, you know, we moved here, you know, I hadn't lived here prior to moving here in 2004. Uh, my parents moved up here, other siblings moved up here. So I have a lot of family now in the area, but not one of these multi, you know, long generational situations that many people in Maine have. But so anyway, yes, I feel a connection to Maine. And I love both my wife and I love it here and we'll never leave. Yeah, it's, well, what a great place. I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. And your brother was very well known for the for the hope elephants because he was that's where they were located and a lot of people would say this is this is the hope elephant guy yes which for anybody who's watching we don't actually have elephants in Maine it's <laughs> it's not native to our our to our state so that was something that I think really right. piqued a lot of curiosity from yes. people yeah and I'd say the through line for Jim and I and others in my family is that we always grew up with the idea that. Anything was possible, you know. And I said earlier to you, his, he had an expression, "You're a Lorita. You started the word no," and so he, you know, never thought that. You, why not bring elephants to Maine? You know, no one's done it, so you know, is is that a reason to not do it? And I would say, you know, making blankets, especially the way that we make them, handwoven. We have lots of other products, but what we're really known for and kind of our, what we hang our hat on are these handwoven products. Um, 
is not, you know, if, if you were trying to think of what's the, you know, how am I really going to make a living and what, what, what's the best way to earn, you know, the most money, you would not make handwoven blankets. That would be a really poor idea. Um, so, yeah, I would say quixotic is not a term unknown to my family. So, so where do you think that came from? I'm assuming this didn't just start with mm-hmm. Jim and with you. Right. This starting with no. Where is that from in your family? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a metaphysical question perhaps, but I think, you know, the, the quick answer is that my mom and dad definitely raised us with this idea that not, that nothing that you could think of was impossible. Now, I think probably they took it to an extreme degree in their lives in a certain respect. But we all grew up with that sense that we could be authors of our own destiny and that we could forge a path irrespective of, you know, the facts, let's say, or the odds of something working out. And, you know, I think the thing I had to learn was as I alluded to earlier, forging your own path, and this is something I've tried to pass on to my own children, is a lot of work. You know, if you had decided to become a different kind of doctor, perhaps, and taken a very alternative path, and maybe you did, I don't know, but um, you, it wouldn't have been in a certain respect as, as, there wouldn't have been as clear a path forward for you as there is perhaps in family medicine. It was very laid out. This is what I should do. Um, so it's, it is a lot of work to forge a different path. And, but it's work I wholly take up. And I mean, that's, this is about creativity. That's my creativity is figuring out how is this, you know, but th- there's a dance here sort of like every company is similar to every other company in a certain respect. And every company is also its own unique thing. So for us, it's we're doing this very unusual thing, this artisanal thing that in a certain respect doesn't make a lot of economic sense because we're not producing the least expensive product for, you know, for the lowest price and so on with the fewest inputs. Not at all. So, how, but... But I, but the company exists in an, in a system in an in economy. So how do we take this thing that we're doing and continue to do it with authenticity and with being able to feel good about the product we're putting forward and the people we're employing and the process that we're following, respecting that process? How does that fit into an economy where you've got a you know you have a, a cash flow, you've got debt? You've got taxes, you have HR issues, you, you have to pay people enough that they can live. Um, you've got to organize the company in a way, you've got to raise capital. Uh, so that's, that's what I really love. I, I love that challenge of trying to do that. And man, it ain't easy. I'm not gonna lie to you, it is not easy. And then doing it in a state like Maine where, you know, how do you find a CFO? How do you find, uh, you know, a really good marketing person? I mean, this is, this is the Portland area. I live, you know, an hour and 45 minutes north of here in Camden, Maine. So 
So it's, you know, where are those people? So, yeah, it's all, I find it fascinating and uh, like to live, I guess, to some degree by the seat of my pants. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this. Well, I can relate to this. I mean, I, so I, I simplified it for you by saying I'm a family doctor. I ran my own practice, which was acupuncture, integrative medicine, and family medicine. There we go. So there's kind of two, two things. I ran my own practice at a time where many physicians were actually mm-hmm. being kind of subsumed by larger systems. Mm-hmm. And also I went down a route that many traditional mm-hmm. physicians at the time were saying didn't make a lot of sense to them. So I absolutely understand mm-hmm. that not only kind of philosophically do you have to remain dedicated to what it is that you've chosen for ideals, but also how do you make that a reality financially? Right. So so I can relate to that. And also you probably won't run into that many doctors doing a video podcast <laughs> on creativity and the human spirit. Mm-hmm. There are doctors doing podcasts. But I'm also interested in the second piece that you've raised and that um, knowing so the my husband, who's the owner of the Portland Art Gallery, he spent many years building businesses in Maine. He's just over here. And by he's way. just behind the other side of the camera. Um, and, and he and I oftentimes would have these conversations about how do you um, bring in the talent that you need? And I'm calling talent. How do people with... <clears throat> expertise, let's say. Yep. How do you bring in a chief financial officer? How do you find the people who know how to do this work? Mm-hmm. Um, because you certainly can home grow them in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're trying to attract somebody from New York City, let's say, to come to Maine to be your CFO, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to be able to offer them the same financial package, let's just say. Right. So so how have you approached that with this main business? I'm on, I think, our seventh CFO but this one, uh, Justin Mazur is his name. Uh, he's really fantastic. And he's been with the company now for eight years. So it was the first, um, you know, 10 years, I guess, or something like that, where uh, we went through a lot of people in that position. And um, not, you know, I understand very well how money works, especially now after doing this for 20 years in the economy and in a small company and so on. But there's no chance in hell that I could put together the documentation or do the kind of detail work, the data analysis and so on that that Justin does or someone in that position. So, um, you know, without going into too much detail, he um, he moved to Maine because um, he was just looking for the best place to live. And then so the corollary of how do you find these people is if you are one of those people, where do you get work? So it's a matter of um, a certain, you might say, destiny of, you know, where these paths come together. And I'd like to think one of the things I'm good at, or I really try to work at, is recognition. Can I recognize when that person's in front of me? Or am I just saying, well, you can't find it. It's impossible. You know, well, of course, it's not impossible. It's difficult much more difficult things have been accomplished, right? So you can find the right people. And so we have a very talented CFO who's also does operations, who's very data-driven. Great compliment to me. Uh, the other executive in the company is Michelle Orn. She's our creative director. She has uh, so many skills, again, that I don't have and is fantastic at uh, building website and photo shoots and 
uh, knitwear design in particular. She That's what she did prior to um, coming to Swan's Island. So she's fantastic at what she does. We have a really great team, uh, but it's taken a long time to build it. And then, of course, part of my job is to hold that team together and, and keep everyone focused on what's coming next and how do we deal with the challenges that we have. And um, while maintaining that threat, what it, you know, what is the company? I often think about that. What, what is, the, is the company the spreadsheets? Is it the website? What is the company? And in our case, I always come back to the same thing. The company is those blankets. That's the company. And I often tell, you know, we have a staff meeting once a week with the production team. And I always try to inspire them that way. This is the company. The work that you guys are doing, you know, I, I joke sometimes. It's like, well, I grew up, work was like, you know, pick up a shovel, you dig a hole. That's work. You know, what I do, I sometimes, is this work that I'm doing? I'm, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm talking to you. I'm doing email. I'm on the phone. I'm having meetings, you know. Um, when I get to do something like, which I actually did get to do recently, pack up alpaca fleece that we're making into uh, blankets for someone, I thought, okay, now I'm doing work. I'm packing them up. This is actual physical labor. So it's, you know, and of course it takes, in our world, one of the things I love about the work that I do is that there is, there's a substance to it. I can go touch that blanket. I can watch it being made. I can sometimes like packing up fleece to send to the mill. I can participate in a little way. Um, I love that. But, you know, a lot of the executive level work, of course, all of it, in fact, is not that. So I don't try to get too big ahead there, you know, and, and think that what I'm, you know, I like to think what I do is important. I think it is for our company. But it's not more important than weaving those blankets and stitching them and dyeing the yarn. And I think there is a, there's actually a corollary in, in healthcare and even the work that I do now, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, a lot of what I do now is in leadership and helping to move teams uh, to maintain or improve patient care and quality experience, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not the one who's touching as many patients directly mm -hmm. anymore, right? but it is, there, there is different levels of work, different types of work, different yes. creativity that's entailed. Yeah. And one thing that I've often thought about as a doctor is, you know, the touch of the patient, you know, appropriate touch. And yeah. These days it's kind of a weird thing to say. Uh, yeah. But to, but to actually have that connection is, is very, very important. But a lot of the work that we do is sort of intellectual work. Yeah. A lot of the things that we do is communication and it's conversation and it's, you know, yeah. making decisions, which I think is similar to what you're describing in your role. But I love the idea of the tangible. Mm -hmm. I think we've gotten very far away from tangibility in yes. this day and age. So much of what we do with the knowledge economy yes. is kind of super tentorial. Mm -hmm. you know, it's an, and so to have something that you can actually say, here is something that we did make mm -hmm. and it is for mm -hmm. you to use for a very long time. Yes. And that, that ability to have something, well, it's not permanent, but it's more permanent than many things. That must be very satisfying. It is. I find it extremely satisfying. I really do. I mean, I, I've been doing this now for 20 years and I get up every morning and enthusiastic and ready to take on that challenge. And yeah, I just, I love it. I do. I know it's not for everybody, but it's, um, I feel very fortunate to have been able to create a life that is so much in um, sync with 
who I am at my essence. So, and you know, it's a lot, lot has to do with Maine, I think. And could this company exist in some other state? I, I somehow don't think so. There's something about that Maine mystique, the, you know, I mean, there is the design, but I, I don't think it's a crazy thing to say that the environment impacts the design and aesthetic and the look and the feel of things that are produced there. So I do think that there's something about what we do that is really main centric. Um, and then there's just the inspiration of, you know, the granite that's here and the salt air here on the coast and the, you know, the dampness of the environment and, um, in our case, in Camden, the hills, some people call them mountains, they're not very tall, but they're beautiful. Um, so the woods, the changing seasons, all of that, the earthiness of Maine, it, you know, that's all in those blankets somehow. And, and I also like the idea that these blankets Im embody this, the story of the people who create them and of the fibers mm -hmm. and, and, and they very much... Um, they contain that essence that that you're describing. Mm -hmm. Then you can sort of lie underneath at night as you're, you know, advancing yeah. into slumber. So, yes. so I think there is something that's also very special mm -hmm. about that. And I and I know in interviewing a lot of artists who are visual artists, mm -hmm. um, that the, the story behind the work that they do is very important to the people who are buying art in many cases. Well, you might say it's everything uh, because a you know, we, I mean, uh, our blankets are very functional. They really, you know, there's a, there's a science behind why it's good to sleep under wool. It wicks moisture away from your body. And in that, there's a little chemical reaction that creates just a little bit of heat. So they are very functional, very comfortable to sleep under. But I'm not sure anyone buys a Swan's Island blanket because they're cold. You know, it's, I mean, you do need that, right? But um, you, it, there's, is there, it's the story, it's the, you know, how this came to be, what the meaning is in your life of this object. Because these, you know, these, let's be honest, these are very expensive products that I'm talking about now are handwoven products. We have less expensive machine-made items. But these products, um, you know, the length of time and the quality of the materials, we can't help but charge what we do. And believe me, our margins are not extreme by any long stretch of the imagination. So, um, so in a certain sense, it, they're totems. Like, what does this blanket say about me as a person? You know, I bought this blanket and I, in a certain way, I associate something about myself with that blanket. And of course you can substitute many other objects for blanket here. Uh, the cars that we drive, for instance. So it's, it does say something about who you are. You're an appreciator of fine craft. You love Maine, perhaps. You want, you know, beautiful functional items in your life, and that matters to you. You're the kind of person to, for whom that matters. In my life, I want every object I have to have a story, from the corkscrew that I use to the lamp that I turn on, uh, my home, of course, you know, my, my blankets, <laughs> um, chairs, you know, that's to me, 
That's the beauty of physical things. It's how they make me feel. And so, yeah, we try to do a lot of storytelling around these blankets. And in our case, it's not a quote unquote story. It is literally all we need to do because we know the farmers and we know where they come from and the mills and we, you know, we weave them by hand and we dye them by hand and finish them and so on by hand. Um, we, we try to t- just tell that story. Here's where this came from. Um, and people, fall, they do fall in love with that. If they come to Northport, so we have a store in Camden, we have a store in Northport, which is just up the road from Camden, where we have our studio where we make the blankets. When people come in there, there's a good chance they're going to leave with a product. Uh, they have to drive there, which is not on, you know, it's, not, it's on Route 1, so it's not uh, like in a, te- you know, downtown. Uh, but, or they come to the website, you know. Or, so, yeah, that's when they see the looms and we talk about how these are made, that's a, that's a much easier sale than uh, on the web, for instance, where we try to convey that as well, but it's a website. And I think there also is, there's a parallel with the work that I know in talking to the Portland Art Gallery artists that they do and that you've, you, it's starting from a, a place of story and then it, it continues mm-hmm. into a place of story. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the art that people purchase goes into their homes and it, and it lives with them. Yeah. And similarly, these blankets, mm-hmm. you know, they, they travel back to where people live and they, they cover the children and, you mm-hmm. know, and sometimes the, the big fluffy golden retriever will lay on top of one mm-hmm. of them. And, and they do become this sort of legacy object, I think, that becomes a sense of, yes. of a life lived. Yes, absolutely. And it, it, not, not one, but more than one time have people chosen to use our blankets as a death shroud. So uh, <laughs> my partner thinks I'm morbid when I speak about this, but to me, it really harkens to how people feel about certain objects in their life that, again, in this case, I want to go out with this thing that has as much integrity in an, uh, that an object can have and authenticity. And um, so, and again, to go back to something I said earlier, and we spoke about making a product with that much integrity and authenticity, it's very hard to marry that with, and, and we're not, it's not just me. I'm not just like blanket artists just doing it. You know, one person, right? Get a commission, make a blanket. This is a company that we have. So there are many hands that go into a blanket. How do you take that thing that's that authentic with that much intentionality and have a company that, as I said, pays taxes and has to raise capital and, you know, plan and, and be concerned about cash flow and all those things. So that's a, you know, that's a different kind of artistry, I guess you would say, than the actual blanket. But it's all part of our, in my mind anyway, these aren't separate atomistic aspects of one's life. This is, this is one's, in my case, my life. How does that, you know, what's that? That's a whole picture. Well, I appreciate your, your bringing me into your picture for at least some short period of time today. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It's, I've enjoyed our conversation and nice to hear a little bit about your, your practice and what, 
what you're involved in. I'm Dr. Lisa Belial. You have been listening to or watching Radio Maine, which is our video podcast exploring and celebrating creativity and the human spirit, which is produced and sponsored by the Portland Art Gallery in Portland, Maine. Thanks again, Bill. Thank you, Lisa.